call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode eight of Call It Friendo. In this week's episode, we discuss the 1967 World War II Men on a Mission film, The Dirty Dozen. And we also talk about the 1955 French film noir, Rafifi. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your area. Also, apologies for my audio this week. I had a bit of a problem with some of the software. It is a bit choppy in places, but it should be okay. And it will never happen again. Enjoy. another installment of Call It Friendo. Uh, I'm going to ask straight off the bat, did you enjoy the films this week? I did. Yeah, I enjoyed both of them. Yeah, me too. I enjoyed both of them. I like. I I think uh, this would be, I can't think of another week, but I would definitely recommend this as just a, just a good double hander for, you know, non movies that won't disturb your sleep. That'll just, just make you sit down and enjoy movies. So yeah, I think, dirty it, I think it works. I think it works as well that they're perhaps not from the, well, they're not from the same director. They're not exactly in the same genre. Maybe that is a better way. And sometimes to kind of pair movies together. Cause they're, no. I mean, I, cause when you suggested like heist, a heist movie is the, is the, is the cousin of a, of a war movie. Yeah. Like, uh, well, no, no. Because would you or, say? No, oh, sorry. So you said uh, man men on, on a mission. mission. Men on a yeah. mission. There, yeah, that's fair. Not, not. High. Yeah, it's true. But there are similarities, definitely, in the way they share they, elements for yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, I just, uh, I can't. Movies like The Dirty Dozen, which I'll intro in a moment, just seem to have existed forever. It's hard to believe somebody made a bunch of them at a time and put them in a cinema and that they were new. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Ben Hur and Spartacus—they've just been playing in the on a loop on Bank Holiday Mondays for so long in my life that I can't. That, believe That's what's wa- strange about it. Like, yeah, I can't believe I haven't—I'd never watched the. I hadn't watched the Dirty Dozen before. That just seems really strange to me because, me, as you say, it's the kind of thing that must have been on TV all the time when I was a kid. Me too, and actually, like just today to kind of um, uh, smart up on the chronology of events and stuff, I started watching it uh, on my break from work. I did a split shift. And I ended up watching uh, about an hour and a half of the thing. Because <laughs> it, it, uh, that's the, the elements of these Bank Holiday movies. It's just like, it's like uh, watching... Yeah, it's very watchable. E- it's like watching four episodes of Friends in a row. You don't feel the time going. It's just like... And actually, I would argue that... Because you, you, you said war movie. Uh, the, like... Yeah, But this yeah, is... Yeah. This comes out like a comedy a lot. But anyway, anyway. It is I, very, it's, I, I was going to say, like, in some ways, it's it also like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait until we get into it before I say anything else. About I'll give it, it an introduction. Ahead. All right. So The Dirty Dozen is a 1967 men, men on a mission movie. Like, maybe it's maybe it's the men on a mission movie, except it's really more of a one flew over the cuckoo's nest meets stripes kind of deal, I would say. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it stars Lee Marvin as Major John Reisman, basically just kind of chalking out the Lee Marvin greatest hits in terms of posture and manliness and shit like that. And he's in, he's put in charge of uh, the titular dozen amongst two number one, Donald Sutherland, Charles Bronson, John Cassavetes and Kojak. Uh, set during yeah, World Mr. War II. Mr. Telly Savalas. It's uh, set during who's also in the, the, the only guy from the originals who's in the two sequels. Oh, yep, indeed. As a different character. 
Yeah, yeah, so it's set during uh, World War II in the months leading up to the European invasion, uh, which makes it kind of hard to believe that they would set money aside for this kind of training camp they do in the country. But anyway, so the film sees Reisman, Lee Marvin's character, placed in charge of these 12 um, conscripts turned convicts, which is my attempt at an, uh, a bit of Alan Partridge alliteration. Conscripts. <laughs> nice. Con- conscripts turned convicts. Uh, this seems like the type of film Alan would like. Uh, in the Definitely, hope- I guarantee Alan Partridge has watched this. <laughs> in the hope of shaving them up for a suicidal mission behind enemy lines. It was directed by Robert Aldrich and based on a true story, but not really kind of inspired by a true story of a guy called, of a bunch of guys called the Filthy 13, who actually, Filthy in 13, fact, indeed. who actually, in fact, were not uh, prisoners at all. They were just lunatics. Uh, I was reading about them earlier today yeah. and... Uh, we'll I suppose get back to them. So, how familiar are you with the genre? We call the genre "Men on a Mission" or "Bank Holiday Monday" movies. <laughs> what are the other like Kelly's Heroes? I guess is one, and that's got Donald Sutherland in it. And... Kelly's Heroes and Kelly's Heroes feels like like it's an interesting thing actually because Kelly's Heroes would have I imagine not met with much approval by the American government. Um, in terms of what it goes for, and by that, in that regard, no, it's been a long time since I've seen Kelly's Heroes, but it's quite irreverent to the U.S. Army. Um, and I, I was reading recently, like the reason, the main reason Top Gun looks so amazing is because it has all those fucking right. planes. It got those planes because the CIA approved of the script. I'd imagine this, it, isn't isn't that like a that's something that I've read online that supposedly the if you work with the if you work with the CIA and the U.S. military they will provide you with yeah yeah, with yeah. all sorts Basically, of toys and resources. They will ma- yeah yeah, they'll make an a, eight million budget look like a hundred million. You know, <laughs> as uh, long as we can crush China. Well, yeah, like that's why you've got those like so many mad uh, fist pumpy patriotic movies in the like 70s and 80s. Like mm. if you take, for example, the first Rocky movie, which is kind of an anti-military, anti-US government movie. Uh, but then the sequels, I, it appears Sylvester <laughs> Stallone got on board with the US military. I, I disagree. Going to Afghanistan or, or fighting Ivan Drago, those were just, those are just for your everyday Philadelphia man to undertake <laughs> in his free time. Anyway, the other big ones would be, I suppose, Where Eagles Dare, the Great Escape is kind of one, oh, of I course. suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would uh, agree with that. It feels similar. Have you seen Where Eagles Dare? This is the kind of thing that, like, I guaranteed I've watched it on a Sunday afternoon. It's good. Things like that, I know that my dad could probably recite the whole thing. Um, uh, but I can't, I don't know if I've watched it. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't say for sure. I used to love Where Eagles There uh, when I was a kid, um, and I went to watch it a few years ago, and I was—it's just kind of like there's no excuse for it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just so—it's so silly. It's a lot of fun, but it's like like it's just non-stop. Everyone's a Nazi or a double crosser or a Nazi, and there's so like it's just just like real life. Exactly, just like real life. Anyway, with men on a mission, then, and uh, I, I got to ask as well. You think there were twelve just so they could have this title? Because 12 seems like a lot. Well, but wasn't, I mean, from the, the origins of the, of the filthy 13, if that's what it was, there were 12 of them and then a 13th was added. Like, in terms of how that squad came together. Um, yeah, maybe translating it to the screen, I guess you want to keep something of, of that origin that, that inspired it. 12 there, is, 
I mean, here's a question. This was one of the questions that I w would have wanted to lead with was like, how many of these 12 characters do we care about total, in total? How many of the 12 could you name? Um, oh, one of them I would honestly, it's terrible. One of them I would honestly just call the black guy. Uh, no, oh, that's come not. on. He's played by Jim Brown. He's a legend. Uh, what's his name? The character's called Robert T. Jefferson. He's number three. Jefferson. All right. Well, I would remember yeah, him. Yeah, but that's I prob I couldn't have told you his name was Jefferson, but I know the actor from a bunch of stuff. I know Maggot is uh, yeah. Kojak. Yeah, uh, I know Maggot. Uh, Franco is John Cassavetes. Yeah, Cassavetes. Um, Charles Bronson, I believe, is played by Charles Bronson. Yeah, Charles uh, Bronson asked himself, "I don't know what you're talking about." That's a great thing. Uh, his his character is called Vladislav because he's uh, Polish from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I think Joy from Friends is played by Donald Sutherland. Um, yep, he's called Pinkley. Uh, Do you Posey. remember the name of the big? Posey's the big gentle giant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know who played him. Why would I? He's not. Uh, not his name's Clem Walker. The other, the other person that I would say is worth mentioning is probably Trini Lopez, who played Pedro Jimenez. Is he though? Well, he was he. Well, yeah, because I guess we'll we'll come to that in in uh, how or what how the events unfolded in the plot and why. Yeah, but I mean, okay. Essentially, you see, Dirty Dozen. You're introduced to the circumstance, which I'll introduce now. I mean, we know we're in for a body count from the get go, because yeah, there's so many disposable people here. Um, well, but, but how that functioned again was that like six of the actors were brought in from overseas and six of them were UK based. So Donald Sutherland was one of the UK based actors at that point. Really? Yeah. So there were there was like a kind of international element like of the or Hollywood type element. And then there were six UK based actors. And this would have been high hopes of a movie coming out. As in, what? you know, they, they were pitching this as a big project. Because this is the thing. It's like, okay, Lee Marvin, he's a movie star, yes? Yeah. He's a big name. At that point, yeah. What? Oh, right. Point Blank, which we watched uh, for this podcast, mm -hmm. is, a bit of a, is a bit of a weird movie. At, by the time The Dirty doesn't come out, it's, it already seems like he's at, you know, um, Clint Eastwood status in the 1990s. But the thing about his his career was that his peak was only he won the Academy Award for Cat Bailu. Cat Bailu, below. Sorry, I haven't seen that. He won that, and that was in 1965. And then he was in The Professionals, Dirty Dozen, Point Blank, Paint Your Wagon. And I think around that time, by the start of the 1970s, his star was already starting to wane. So he really just had like a five year stretch. Huh. Of where he was at the top. I yeah, read a lot of anecdotes about him basically pissing it up in London. He was getting smashed all the time. And apparently Charles Bronson wasn't best pleased in some of the scenes that they were in together. Because Lee Marvin was either drunk or hungover. And Charles Bronson is not a drinker? Well, apparently, although his face says otherwise, at <laughs> least he was a, a bit more professional. Probably because Lee Marvin was in a position to kind of do what he wanted. Because he, yeah, he, he was the star. He had a reputation for that kind of crap. I mean, and this is uh, basically a greatest hits movie for his type of poses, at least for most of it anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it opens, we see a, a hanging 
which uh, Marvin Reisman is made to witness for some reason. I don't know. I, yeah, that I've, is a, that is fairly strange. They've just brought in this major, and they're like, "Hey, we're going to watch you, uh, or what? You're going to make you watch as we execute a uh, condemned uh, member of the armed forces." The tone in terms of what's happening is bananas, but only like in hindsight, because it was kind of the order of the day then. Like war films were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they were all beginning like uh, the bridge over the river Kwai and shit like that. Just like, you know, fun little theme tunes and stuff like that. That's what I think is, it, that's what's funny. Uh, one thing that's funny about The Dirty Dozen is that Robert Aldrich supposedly wanted to make the film as like a comment and almost like an anti-war film to what was going on in the Vietnam, the Vietnam War. War. But overall, <laughs> the film doesn't seem anti-war to me at all. No, it no, it doesn't. pretty jolly for like a bunch of guys who are on death row. I actually noted completely to the contrary, yeah. in, especially in terms of the, the Vietnam War, it, based in, on a sequence that like we'll get to. But I mean, for the moment, with the yeah, you've got this grim-ass opening of a, ha- of a hanging, but at the same time, it has the feel of the opening you know, sequence in the TV show Porridge. It's a bit of crack, like, and a guy gets hanged, and yeah, yeah. the mu- the music, like he does, and we see him hang, and the music is all jangly, and yeah, yeah, it's nice, it's fun, we're the dirty does, and... Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose it was just par for the course back there, but it's just odd because I don't know wh- wh- at what point, I think it might have been Platoon, a movie I've actually never seen. Uh, but oh, I think you haven't I'm, seen Platoon, okay. No, no, I'll pop that on the list at some point. Okay. But um, yeah, uh, I think it was around then that officially war, as depicted in war movies, is hell. It became hell, and that's it. But before that, I mean, okay, you can see like Russian like like Russian films about World War Two or Hungarian ones that are just horror movies. But um What's that the, Russian what's the Russian the famous Russian war film from like nineteen eighty five or, or anything? Come, come and see. Yeah, I heard I haven't watched that, but again it just it sounds brutal. I've watched that I've watched that a, a couple of times. It is like it's it's hellish. Yeah. Like it'll mm-hmm. it'll that it's it'll get it it'll get it in your head. It's a visceral fucking experience that film. But anyway War films by, uh, written and directed by the victors were still kind of, I don't know, um, I wonder, like, when was the first sort of anti-war film by Americans? Yeah, I have I'm sure no there, idea. I'm sure there were, there were ones, but there mm. was, seemingly, I would associate much more uh, the period with uh, films like this, where war just seems like a bit of crack bit of fun like anyway yeah definitely i was just thinking like uh i remember in terms of japanese films i mentioned in the battles without honor and humanity kinji fukusaku made uh, a japanese anti-war film uh, and that was in 1971 under the flag of the rising sun you mentioned so, that before, yeah. Yeah, at least in Japan they were dealing with it. But again, like you said, it's <coughs> different for the victors. Yeah, because yeah, they're just so, painting it their way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want, they, I suppose, spiritually, the, the country would want to hang on to their victory be, uh, rather than look back on, you know, the vast, uh, vast and corrosive effects it had on the national consciousness. Right. So they're, you know, they're still attached to war was brilliant. We won, uh, we won, baby. 
Indeed. So then, anyway, next we see Marvin carted before Ernest Borgine and Robert Ryan, who'd recently been scurryless together. In a, have you ever seen Bad Day at Black Rock? No. Oh, fuck, that's terrific. But anyway, uh, it's a, it's or a, another uh, World War Two or post-World War Two movie. It's a post-World War Two noir, if that's a genre. Anyway, okay. before uh, Ernest Borgine and Robert Ryan, uh, by none other than George Kennedy. Uh, do you know any of the, you know these people? Have you seen Cool Hand George Luke? Kennedy, yeah, he was George Kennedy. The He's in Top Gun yeah, as well. Sure, sure. He's in Top Gun. Oh, my God. Yeah. I remember. No, him, not him Top Gun. Top Gun. Uh, Naked Gun. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, He's Frank Drebin's partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. What's he called in, ta- in, uh, in, in, Naked, in the Naked Gun? I oh, I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna tell you. I'll tell you one second. I can't find it. Oh yeah, here we go. His name's Ed, Captain Ed Hawken. Nice, sorted. Uh, anyway, with Marvin before these boys, it just—it's a meeting that could, like, I don't know, easily evolve into like kind of a a Hollywood b-listers men's men's support group or something like that because you know i mean they're all very recognizable faces but you can never man yes they're they, but they never got to burt lancaster status because they don't look like burt lancaster they look like real men so they're well, kind a lot, of also a lot of these guys served in the second world war oh they were, i'm sure they would have all served in the lee, lee marvin war. robert weber robert ryan they were all u.s marines telly savalas and george kennedy were in the army charles bronson was air force ernest borgnine was in the navy and clint walker who played posey he was a merchant marine yeah he does look like a bit of a sailor boy doesn't he he does indeed <laughs> right also so based on this scene do we know why everyone seems to be ticked off with reisman um, the like chiefs of staff or those guys yeah, yeah. that are his superiors. Yeah, is probably it just because cause... he's because he's a goddamn loose cannon. I was just gonna say, is he, was he a loose cannon? He seems like a he's, loose. He's, he's got he's a loose cannon. He's out there. He's just he's doing all kinds of all kinds of shenanigans that we don't get to see. But it's clear yeah. from the way that he manages the dirty dozen that he's perhaps doesn't respect the authority of his superiors, which seems to have been the case with the. The actual the commander 13. of the Filthy 13, from what mm-hmm. I read about the guy, seems a really interesting fella. That, also, just to say it, get it out of the way, the actual story of those boys, that'd make a great movie. Right. They were involved in a lot of, like, they were a, they were in Operation Market Garden, they went yeah. to uh, to the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, they got parachuted they into the, to, to the Battle of the Bulge to blow up bridges. Yeah. Fucking crazy, like, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah. They were just, uh, yeah. What your, your man? I forget his, his name, McThief or some shit like that. So it's an odd name, but uh, just basically said he would let like he would do nothing that wasn't necessary to the success of his mission. Right. Apparently, he got a lot of flack for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so is that why they, they don't like Ry- Robert Ryan? Doesn't like Reisman because he's a goddamn loose cannon. This is one thing that I'm I'm always wondering about, like uh, movies of uh, of this time, um, and you see the top brass in the army right at this time i mean victory in europe was not a sure thing no but then again what would you mean that like the way that this period is painted it seems a lot more assured now in retrospect or no it just seems like nobody's thinking about the fucking faith of the western world you know yeah 
I mean, I probably. Bec- I guess that's not the message that they're going for. Well, but at the at, at this Dirty Dozen mission was not going to be make or break for the whole of D Day. They just went in to kill some generals. It wasn't. I mean, it would. It would just help. It, it was going. It was going to aid D Day because they were like, "There's going to be a lot of generals at this castle together. If we kill them, it's going to sow a level of confusion in the troops." So oh, yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll be beneficial, but it was kind of, this is just like an extra where they're like, let's just so, throw some of these guys to, to certain death because why not? They're literally criminals, literally drinking whiskey, like a bunch of villains as we do it. So yeah. Nice. Anyway, um, Marvin gets thrown his mission. Oh yeah. First of all, Ernest Borgine's character, like asks him about watching the man hang. And he's like, how, how'd you feel about that? Watching the man hang? <laughs> Which, uh, I mean, is a bit much. I said, no, I mean, I know he's a loose cannon and everything, but you don't have to do that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, they give him this mission. They're just going to give him this bunch of ne'er-do-wells, and he's going to have to take this chateau in France with a bunch of generals having a party about uh, at it. Now, I have to say, this seems to be about two months before the night of the party. So, I mean, I don't know how they're going to know two months before the night of the party. That's all I'm saying. But anyway, then we get out of there, and we go and meet the dozen. Uh, yes. From that, right? Okay. So we're introduced all the dozen. It's basically like the cataloging of the ships from the Iliad or something. In that, we're given a bunch of information. I don't think we're gonna remember any of it, are we? Except the famous people. Was John Cassavetes famous by this point? I was wondering about that because, I mean, in terms of his acting career, this is, I guess, the the pinnacle. Was this? I mean, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this uh, film. Well, he's in Rosemary's Baby. That's true. What was that? That was 60... Was that, was that before or after this? Because this was 67. Feel, he, he seems like he's older in uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Rosemary's Baby, I feel like, was maybe 69. 68. Just, 68, 68, yeah. So yeah, similar sort of time. I've watched... Um, a woman under the influence, and it's yeah, it's just an intensely fucking deep psychological movie, like John Cassavetes in this movie. Now there are many people in many different movies in this movie in terms of the performance they're delivering. Like George Kennedy is in an episode of Dad's Army, that's for <laughs> sure. Like he he just he just is. Um, but yeah, um, John Cassavetes Franco, who we get introduced to first, he's the first of all the dozen that we see. He's just got a fucking wiry intensity about him in that he does, he, like, and that, I suppose, testament to John Cassavetti's ability as an actor, he does look like a fucking crazy, dangerous man. Yeah, he's got the energy of Nicky from The Killing. Yeah, he would, actually. Yeah, 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 indeed. You're just, you're, yeah, a bit, you want to... A, a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to back away from him, you know? And then, okay, so, okay, I'll be honest. So we've got, we, we've got what, uh, Vladislav, then we... Jefferson, Franco, uh, running out of people, Posey, uh, Pinkley, Mustache Man, a bunch of losers. I mean, you know, what's There's happened? at least, there, there's like four or five guys that, uh, that we don't even really get any sense of who they are. But I suppose that's pretty fine. clear. But then also an important thing in terms of these of these uh, members of the Dirty Dozen is that, like, it's one, two, three, four, five of them have been sentenced to death. 
the others have been sentenced to between 11 to 30 years of, of some of hard labor, some of imprisonment, but yeah. uh, they've all committed fairly serious crimes. Um, except, for, we, except, for, except for Jefferson. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we come to that. I mean, his crime was serious, but like his was, I think, more like a, a, a reaction to the time. Well, no, Vladislav as well. His, his, oh, yeah, um, he shot someone who'd, uh, who was given shitty orders. He wasn't taking no bollocks from his superiors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I wondered about that because would Charles Bronson have had clout at this point as a star? To to say I don't want my character to be a total piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. Like Paulie uh, from The Sopranos only agreed to be in it if he was never going to be a rat. Well, I think uh, there are definitely. I think there are elements of that throughout because there. I think there were some changes that were made uh, as filming happened, um, which again we can come to some of those. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if Charles Bronson had either specifically requested that or else that's how the ca- that's how that character was written well anyway that's that he gets he gets a relatively honorable one uh, marvin goes to meet them all and immediately of course franco starts giving him a bit of guff and marv lee marvin ends up just having to you know teach him a thing or two and he kicks his ass quite brutally actually even though it cuts away he stumps on his face yeah he does kick the shit out of him uh, he stomps on his face, and they chuck him in the in the prison cell and take away his shoelaces. And then um, Lee Marvin comes in and says, "You know, if you're gonna act tough, you better learn to take care of yourself." And then you realize, "Oh, Lee, Lee Marvin is this group of prisoners, Jordan B. Peterson, essentially." <laughs> there we go. He is. He's gonna nice. get them get them all to wash their penis and clean their room. It's pretty cool. So he gets to he gets the roundup. He gets to figure out what they all did. Seems Franco was a bit of a gangster in Chicago or something like that. Yeah, he's like uh, a mafia guy. Maggot was a, a weird uh, Southern Baptist rapist. Am I getting that Ma- right? Maggot's, Maggot's origin is the most troubling of all because he and uh, I mean the way that things progress for that character is that. He has a, a really interesting relationship with the ladies. It seems like he's just, he wants to, he, he call, basically all women are whores to him and he wants to torture them. And uh, yeah. we get to see a bit of that later on. Originally that character was supposed to be played by Jack Palance, so Jack Palance turned it down um, for the reason Jack, that... Jack Palance, hmm? who's Jack Palance? Jack Palance, uh, he was the bad guy in Shane. He was. Oh, okay. gotcha. He was in the Tim Burton Batman. Gotcha. Um, yeah. He, yeah. So he turned it. He turned the role down actually because of the racism. Which oh yeah. Because remember, <laughs> Maggot is also a racist. Yes, <laughs> I have it here. Like a scary uh, lady killer. Yes, I do. We have an N bomb in a couple of scenes' time because first of all, mm-hmm. Maggot gets introduced. And then Charles Bronson gets... Uh, no, sorry. Char- I think Charles Bronson is introduced first, then Maggot. Then we kind of get to witness Jefferson just be racismed against. And then he gets introduced. And uh, Lee Marvin seems to say say that he sympathizes with his causes, etc., etc. And then they kind of all get their Reservoir Dogs style sit down, which is very similar to the kind of... Yeah. You know, Pep talk and Reservoir Dogs. I wouldn't be surprised if Tarantino kind of took some visual cues from that. 
Yeah, well, uh, I mean, also, like, the similarities between this and uh, in Inglorious Bastards. Bastards. I mean, there's, that's clearly... Well, this was supposedly a big influence on the original... Inglorious Bastards, yeah. Yeah, the original 1977 Italian film. Yeah, this is apparently, like, kind of a... Well, Inglorious Bastards is basically a, a sort of a spaghetti remake of this. Yeah. Um. Anyway, then... Yeah, we got a Reservoir Dog-style pep talk, and then he, Lee Marvin explains to them their mission and what they're going to do, and then fucking Maggot goes and drops an N-bomb. He says, are we, <laughs> are we going to have to eat beside N-bombs? And, of course, Jefferson, you know, rightfully so, kicks the shit out of him. Which doesn't uh, look too hard uh, at that point. I think he could take Telly Savalas. Given that, he, given that at this point Jim Brown was 29 years old, he was yeah, still yeah. playing American professional, football. Yeah. yeah, yeah, professionally. Um, so I think he was. It wasn't a tough fight, a challenging fight for him. No, 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 no. But I mean, the, the disturbing thing is, is Maggot's character looks like he might be, he might enjoy that kind of thing. No, oh, definitely, definitely. Being be- beaten up by an African American while screaming racial slurs. Yeah, seems definitely. like the, the kind of thing that he'd be into. All right. So then, yeah. Then okay. I'm watching no. Once again, I I I can't stress enough. Like I I did quite enjoy this movie. I think I, I like I would have watched it one point five times. So then we're jeeps to countryside to building a camp montage and like oh yeah, it's just straight up comedy at this point. Yeah, well, I'm wondering like where's the Slapstick. sense of ur- urgency in saving the Western world? To be honest, because we get a full on montage and I'm just wondering watching it like oh, what when officially because. War movies like a war movie like this would not get made today. There's no, no way. No, no. People would like people. You would propose it, and people would go. Um, Nazis are not funny. It, it, I think it harks back to another another time. Really, I think you might have hit the nail on the head a little bit when you said um, a lot of these guys did service because I mean maybe like. If for anybody who served in World War Two, maybe this would have been their preferred way of interpreting it. Because I mean, I've read like, I've, I, did you watch the Peter Jackson documentary? They shall grow not old. Yes. I mean, most of the boys in that like just remember having the crack and having the banter. All the boys who survived, yeah, they had now lovely the, teeth. I remember. Now the thing is, there is no way that's correct. I mean, <laughs> you know, World War One. If the history is to be believed, <laughs> the worst war ever <laughs> was the worst war fucking ever. So they're kind of hanging on to their their sort of gallows humor, and that's what they're going to choose to remember for it from it. And fair play, why the fuck wouldn't they? Um, so I wonder if this ge- this generation, like from the like, let's say the 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 interpretation of war movies going from I don't know the sixties well, through a bit of the the seventies is just like yeah that, that like processing it in a certain way. You know, what I I read that Lee uh, Lee Marvin felt that um, this film wasn't realistic at all in terms of uh, his Second World War service, but he didn't he didn't particularly like the film. I think I think he thought it was a bit shit. But he went on to make a film called The Big Red One in 1980, which was a Samuel Fuller um, Second World War film that he said was a much more realistic representation of his World War II service. The Big Red one is a great movie. Yeah. I really I really enjoy that film. Um, I seen it. Well, no, no, so, yeah. So, well, Lee Marvin might not have enjoyed it. I certainly fucking did. 
but anyway, that would that would just be my thoughts on that. Because yeah, then we get a full on montage that includes a Buster Keaton reference uh, as a building oh, yeah. is raised around me, re, uh, Lee Marvin, and uh, Donald Sutherland just being dumb. That's his his shtick in the film. Like he wouldn't have been near a movie star at this point, would he, Donald Sutherland? No. No, no, no. He was, this was just, like I said, he, he's obviously he's from Canada. He was living in the, in the UK at the time and got this role. And this role is the reason why he got MASH. Because, well, we'll I'll wait until we get to the, I'll wait till we get to the scene. Okay, cool beans. Uh, so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, they, this is them just building their camp. And Franco is still just... Uh, he's not playing ball. This is when the movie starts to... I don't know, did sports movies come before or after this? But at this point, it kind of becomes a bit of a sports movie, like a high school sports movie. Um, Because Lee Marvin, he really wants to reach these kids. And uh, he just can't seem to <laughs> reach Franco, who kidnaps like a pair of pliers and uh, decides to um, plot his escape. But um, Jefferson and Bronson, I'm just uh, Vladislav, Jefferson and Vladislav, Charles Bronson, fuck it. So Jefferson and Charles Bronson just stop at Franco and beat the shit out of him. They give him a code red. Yes, what's called a code, a code red. And uh, yeah, yeah, and they bring him back in and, um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, when they're bringing him back in, Lee Marvin goes, uh, slipped on the soap, eh? Uh, <laughs> Which isn't uh, the first, ins- the only instance of Lee Marvin being camp in the movie. And actually, I've made a specific note of one scene where Lee Marvin is outrageously camp. And based on what you told me, maybe he was just pissed. So, uh, yeah, then we're on to the, this rope scene. And this was the peak of my watching and going, was World War II not more urgent than this? Which is when Chavez, is his name Chavez? Jimenez? Jimenez, Jimenez, Chavez, might as well be. Anyway, sorry, that, I'm being a racism. Anyway, Jimenez is trying to climb this rope, oh, and yeah. he's, find, he's finding it tough. So Lee Marvin shoots at him. It's quite um, impressive to shoot a rope with a machine gun, severing the rope. That's, and, that's good and, not, and not hitting Jimenez. Yeah, right? and not killing just, him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's just shooting up at him. And yeah, yeah, all right. So then we got that rope scene, and then... This is the point where we've got Lee Marvin being camp, where so somebody says, oh, I thought Mayonnaise was the one who was supposed to get up on the uh, chateau. And Lee Marvin says, um, and suppose Mayonnaise gets shot on his way up. I swear to God, he delivers it like that. He delivers it. <laughs> a really odd. And it makes sense now that you're, you're saying that he was inebriated because, yeah, he could easily be wankered when he delivers. That. I thought his I thought his line reading earlier on when I think he's talking to Maggot when he says, like, us southern boys need to stick together. He did the same thing that, like, oh, I think well, you're, he could be a bit. Oh, so he's camping it up on purpose. Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe that's just... Uh, he, do, he does get a dig in at Robert Ryan later on as well, where he goes, I didn't realize you were so uh, emotionally reactive or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. Uh, anyway, then. So then we're on to Lee Marvin talking trash to Posey. This is what I mean when I'm talking. You've got... This is basically a Lee Marvin tough guy, tough guy, Jordan Peterson, fucking greatest hits collection. 
Because the next thing he does is he talks shit to uh, Posey, who's basically uh, Fruity Rudy from Generation Yeah, Killer, I right? was exactly thinking that. He just looks he looks like Fruity Rudy. Indeed. Might I just say, Andy, uh, your reference game is sick, bro. So, <laughs> yes, that's a nice... I'm, got, I'm, actually, I'm actually looking at the scene right now, and he's yeah, he's a spitting image of Fruity Rudy. Yeah, yeah, and his, deme- his attitude as well is yeah. just so Fruity Rudy. Anyway, so, yeah. Um, Lee Marvin then is just just poking him and poking him and poking him until Fruity Rudy goes for him, and then he does uh, like a bit like a ju- a judo flip. Uh, I was <laughs> judo flip. <laughs> yeah, I was finding it funny. It was like oh, like the movie I mentioned earlier as well, um, Bad Day at Black Rock. So I don't know for a period in American cinema, uh, martial arts like any kind of a fluid fighting movement that wasn't drunken swinging your fists just must have appeared like acceptably like having magical powers or something to audiences because the like the gravity that like martial arts moves when they're pulled off in films are given versus how silly they look compared to like proper martial arts movies that we see nowadays um, is just, like I always just find it quite funny. Like in Bad Day at Black Rock, there's a scene where a one-armed man uh, basically um, does a similar flip to Robert Ryan, and you can just see it was either Robert uh, Robert Ryan or his stuntman just does a flip. You know what I mean? Like it's just a tumble right, in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a similar yeah. thing with Fruity Rudy here. Is odd. Every time like, you say Robert Ryan, I think you're talking about Stephen Ryan. <laughs> I am. But I'd also like to see him flip someone. I'd like to see, of all the roles in this film, who would you like to see Stephen Ryan play? <laughs> Stephen Ryan should be the man who goes to the orgy and gets uh, gets cut out. That's so he should go. He should go to the big uh, the, the the orgy with the prostitutes. Oh yes, out. yes, I get cut so out. In, nice. in reference, in reference to the to our first episodes. Your reference Stephen game Ryan is sick, bro. Starred in the lobster. He was the star of the lobster, but was unfortunately cut out. He got to touch a booby. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, at this like, like it was at this point that I was watching today, and I like I, I I'm already like about an hour into it, and I just was like, this is, this is why, this is a bank holiday movie. Because it really doesn't matter what's happening at all. I'm just watching it, and it's kind of fun. And I just right. can't believe—I can't believe people used to make movies like this. Because yeah, it's like they existed forever or something. Do you know what I mean? This was a tentpole movie, and it's like yeah, the I mean, Id- that, that's, it's impossible for me to to kind of comprehend what it was like when this came out. Because yeah, it, to me, this has always just existed in that Saturday or Sunday afternoon post lunch period. And you know um, when they like when people say things like "Oh, they don't make movies like this anymore." I think basically what they're talking about is pacing. Like they would make you, they would cut ribbons out of this movie. Yeah, but, you wouldn't get. I mean, how long is it? Is two and a half hours long? Yep. Um, yeah. And basically, like you would, you wouldn't see this made these days at all. But, it's uh, it's it's a two and a half hour long film, and it's one hour forty five into it before they get on a plane to go to France. So it's yeah. only 45 minutes, so there's like the vast majority of the film is just the introduction to the Dirty Dozen and then their training. Yeah, it's a POW movie, but they're POWs of, of their own country. Yeah. Kind of. 
I mean, it's all sorts of things, anyway. So then, um, Maggot uh, is there talking to this shrink, and he kind of foreshadows him being a bit of a dick later in the movie by just being weird and rapey. I'm going to put it down to that. You know the scene I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, about? yeah, yeah. So they all they're all have some kind of psychological assessment, and it's clear that Telly Savalas' Maggot is by far the worst, which I think is uh, is borne out by the rest of the film. He's the hey. wild card. There's yeah. absolutely no reason to have him involved in this. No, there isn't. But I suppose that, like, he gives the group their edge. I suppose if you if you if you get my meaning, like Frank uh, Fr- Franco does to an extent as well. But he becomes redeemed. But you've got to have one who's just a fucking hardened criminal. You know, I guess it's like the Shawshank Redemption would be just a lovely movie if it wasn't for the sisters. That's true. This guy, yeah. I mean, Maggot is definitely of that he, vibe of the sisters. He is a sister, yeah. Um, and then in between that and uh, Charles Bronson's shrink scene, which is excellent, we've got um, Lee Marvin drinking whiskey and talking about tactics, and the the psychologist talking about tactics to him. And uh, this is when it's like this is this is it. This is the blueprint of a sports movie, basically. Yeah. So they're going, there's no way this will work. And he's going, he's like, they hate us. They hate the U.S. Army. And it's like, yeah, they hate the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army is all they know. They haven't, the, the Krauts haven't done nothing to them yet, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just think at that point, that, then it goes just full blown. I mean, most, most, of the, most of the film is these 12 men against the U.S. Army. <laughs> it's so weird. It's more, almost like the fighting the Nazis is like this afterthought at the end because <laughs> like the you know that that structure is just them versus authority and the nazis are when they the nazis are just a bunch of silly guys when they they feature in the film in the end yeah anyway so then then we've got the cold the cold water shave debacle which this is why i so basically what happens is uh franco starts just giving out stink because or the guards have warm water to shave and the boys have to make do with cold water. And he, Franco is just not having this. He's, he's not happy. And Charles Bronson approves. And uh, they come up against uh, the guards and Lee Marvin and everything. And uh, they said, all right, fine. You're not going to be washing or nothing. Um, I think this is when they call them a dirty dozen at some point at this point. It is. It's uh, the military prisoner, the mil- sorry, military police, who the guy who looks like Walton Goggins. Yes, He's, he does uh, look a little He goes, like you, dirty, you dirty dozen. But I, <laughs> yes, I mean, clearly this scene was the one where the like Robert Aldridge or, or the writers had... Uh, had had thought this is the point where we can uh, we can link this back to the filthy thirteen story. Oh, why were they famously dirty too? Yeah, <clears throat> that was why they were called the filthy the filthy thirteen was because they didn't bathe. Ah, uh, all right, okay. So that like the, the, we got a direct link to to this and there. Yeah, because this, this a- is it's probably the only part of the of the story that's that's a, that's actually similar, <laughs> but I th- for for different reasons. I don't think they were being punished because they well, weren't actually a bunch of hardened criminals. I think they just didn't bathe. Well, also then immediately when the what the film gets from them not bathing is they immediately all start to look like damn dirty hippies. Yeah. Which would have made, I don't know, them, I don't know, more identifiable for a certain audience of a certain age and made the 
U.S. Army seemed like a more acceptable proposition. You see, this is why I think the CIA might have approved of this. Oh, so you think this is like pro the Vietnam War and trying to aid the armed forces? Yes, I do. Yeah, Mm. I I think that, yeah, it kind of reaches in to the uh, countercultural spirit. Um, It does make, it makes joining the army look pretty fun. It looks pretty cool. It's like you hang out with your boys, you get some whiskey, prostitutes. Nice. It's all good. Are there any other movies from that era that like cause it, like that specifically try to tap into the countercultural uh, vein, like war movies? Not off the top of my head. I'm sure there are. I can't think of any at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure it was a botched attempt anyway. If we can't think of them, so then anyway, next up. All right, I don't know why this happens. I know I know what happens, but I don't know why it happens. So the boys have to go off to where Robert Ryan is drilling or waiting for a general to arrive for some reason. Um, and they have this funny little gag where he walks outside and the band yeah, starts playing. That's very Stripes. That feels yeah, like yeah. Stripes. Not now! And it, yeah. happens, it happens three times in a course on the... Just, and then, just, just the look on the guy's face as he's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, conducting it's actually, his, his orchestra. It's a funny little gag. They've got, they've got some funny like kind of dad gags in there. There's another one, uh, one where... Franco's being served up some garbage food, and he goes, "I stepped in this kind of thing, but I ain't never eaten it." Um, mm. But anyway, yeah. So then, yeah, of course, Robert Ryan, the the band starts. He said, "Not now." Then they start again. He said, "Not now." And then he comes out, and then they don't start, and he goes, oh, "Now, for God's sake!" Yeah, you can see uh, that one coming a mile off. Oh, a mile off. But for some reason, in the following scene, and he does it really well, actually, I have to say, um, Donald Sutherland has to pretend to be a general. Do you know why this happens? It's not the only thing that happens in this sequence, uh, but why does this have to happen? This is the thing I was referencing earlier, that this was originally supposed to be Posey that did this, but um, I think it was an objection from Clint Walker, the actor who plays Posey, he thought it was, I mean, and as I I mentioned before, well, he was actually a merchant marine. He wasn't in the military, but he didn't want (coughs) to act this scene. He didn't want to do this because he thought it was in some way demeaning to, to the military. So he was, that was rewritten and he was, it was replaced to be Pinkley, Donald Sutherland, who did it. And supposedly, because of Donald Sutherland's performance in this scene, this is why he got MASH. And oh, because right. he well, got MASH he... Is, is probably why we saw him in Don't Look Now and why he went on to have a, a great career. I, but, I thought you were just going to say and he, why he had sex with Julie Christie. As well, yeah, the same. But I think in yeah. terms of why it's that in the too. film... I mean, I think it's just there to be like a sort of funny thing. Just with the where where the group oh, no, of no, no, guys no, no. are all together. Don't get me wrong. I just don't understand why it happens in the story. I don't understand why how it links it any to anything else. Just because I think they uh, they think it's like a fun, you know, it's like a fun, funny thing to do. Supposedly, Robert Ryan's character is responsible for this this area uh, of. I mean, they're in the they're in the south of England doing training i think this is robert ryan's territory so they go in and just have they're they're using they're using some of his either equipment or resources i think but marvin um 
Marvin get Mar- Marvin uh, gets raw at um, uh, Pinksley for for it afterwards, even though he put it up to him. Well, I don't think he. W- I think he wanted Pinkley. To- I think it was the fact that Pinkley kind of made comments and sort of took the piss a bit more that they he was kind of uh, a bit annoyed at. But yeah, oh, it I- does feel like he sort of set him up to like. He kind of, he he told him just walk around. Just you've seen you've seen generals before. Just walk around and act stupid. Then yeah, but while this is all happening, um, two boyos come into the jacks while Vladislav is trying to take a piss. Yeah, and uh, they beat the shit out of him because he doesn't have dog tags. Now he doesn't That's have true. dog tags because he's in the dirty dozen. Um, uh, like are they under the direction of anybody? Or they or, or are they? They're, just... they're working for Robert Ryan. Robert Ryan yeah. tells them to tells them to go and I think they're they're instructed to go and beat him up. So they're doing this so at the behest yeah, of Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. He, he, they've been told to go and beat him up, definitely. All right, well, fair enough. Then they, yeah, so they go in and beat the shit out of him. He gets a tough old doing. But then I believe, is it Jefferson who comes to the rescue of him? Yeah, Jefferson and Vladislav seem to be best mates. Yeah, they seem to be tight. It's nice. It's good. The You know, the Polak and the, the, uh, the African-American. Is Polak a derogatory term? Did I say a derogatory yes. term? Yes. <laughs> is it a derogatory term? Definitely, yeah, it must be. Why? Oh, okay, fair enough. Why? Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. There's no, there's no need for me to know that. Uh, yeah, well, that scene with Donald Sutherland is great in that scene. Uh, but it's actually no, because I forgot to mention it. It's the second. It's made like the second funniest scene in the movie. But by far the funniest I found, and uh, we didn't go over it really, is uh, when uh, Charles Bronson is being seen by the psychoanalyst. He's just very funny in that scene. Um, yeah, he's going baseball, Chicago, what, Kansas City. So, like he's explaining to it, it's like for example, uh, for example, if I said uh, if I, if I said uh, children, you would say happiness. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I no. wouldn't say that. <laughs> what if I, <laughs> what if I said <laughs> officer? I would say nothing. I, I thought that, I <laughs> yeah, thought it was very great. funny. He's great. I laughed a lot excellent, at that. Excellent, uh, excellent Charles Bronson delivery on that. Right, so then, yeah, after like at the, at the, this is when also when uh, Reisman delivers his um, his sick burn, where he uh, says to Robert Ryan's character, uh, "Ooh, I, I I didn't know you uh, got so quite emotional or something like that." It basically says he's having an emotional reaction to it, uh, which is uh, just good stuff to see. Anyway, then the we've got this guitar scene, um, which. Kind of like this is where Jimenez is kind of playing his guitar a little bit. He's having a laugh doing that, um, and it's all just kind of a nice evening back at the Dirty Dozen hangout, especially because Big Creepy Maggot is up in the in the tower, and then uh, we see uh, Lee Marvin approaching the tent with what looks like three big bottles of Johnny Walker Black, and all of a sudden this truck arrives, which is like I've seen this in. I can't think of other movies where I've seen this. Why can't I think of this? But I have seen this. What do you mean? Where they bring in... Uh, where they deliver women. Ladies. Yeah, yeah where they definitely. Ju- I, I, can't, I can't think either. Apocalypse Now, I suppose, would be one in uh, some of the extra yeah. scenes in, in Redux. Oh, with the, yeah, with the R&R type, uh, when they bring in the, the ladies for the show. Yeah, where they just basically d- deliver women to these hungry convicts. I think it's not unfair to say. Um, and all the women, I mean, I think they basically just uh, took barmaids from Coronation Street. I think that's 
that's what we yeah, got there. There's it's a it's an interesting selection because uh, <laughs> there's there's something for everyone. Let's say. Yeah, there is. There's something for everyone. That's a nice <laughs> even for the modern, even for the modern audience, there's there's a lady at the back that yeah, she's, uh, she's interesting. She's I don't know. I could I couldn't guess her gender. Let's say. Yeah, but then anyway, they all start smoking cigarettes and dancing with these smelly, dirty convicts. Um, that's the worst part that's definitely the worst part i feel i just feel bad i feel bad for these ladies having to deal with the smell well i'll tell you what you said it's the worst part but i do feel bad for those ladies but it just kind of it doesn't quite it, it stands out in the movie it's a weird scene it is a very weird scene and maybe I, that's just do you think that's just through like a modern lens I, I, maybe, I was wondering maybe back that in '67 it was normal. I was wondering that. Yeah, no, because like it's just, it's just. I don't, like. I don't feel like it's gross or anything, but it just feels odd. It's like literally, you know. what I mean, because there, there, there has been elements of comedy in this, but there's also been elements of harsh grimness, like where he stamps on Franco's head and stuff like that. Um, and this is just this is straight out of a Dad's Army episode. I keep well, referencing so, Dad, you've, you've had, Dad's you've Army. You've had comedy, comedy grimness, and now you have you have romance. Yes, I suppose you could say you could say that. It's, yeah, I don't know. Just it stands out as not seen. And then anyway, so the oh yeah yeah, and Maggot is furious. He's calling them all whores, <laughs> which is quite funny. He's yeah, just, he's up on the watchtower. He's furious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the warning signs were there for how uh, Maggot was going to turn out. Any road, then Robert Ryan comes along the next morning. He's furious. He's there. Uh, he, he like he barges into the camp, get, takes guns off the military police, and then Lee Marvin fucking shoots at him. That's what Lee Marvin does. Lee Marvin just shoots at Robert Ryan. Um, well, that's how he, we know that. That's how we know that Lee Marvin is a hundred percent with his with his crew with his, with his boys. boys. Yeah, exactly. He's with his boys now because his boys are with all boys. Fight, uh, fighting Robert Ryan's crew. Then we've got. Uh, you know, then we've got the, before we get to the final act of the war movie, we have to get through the final act of Animal House. So, oh, yeah. Uh, this God. comes in. This inter- is Stripes. Wait. This is big time Stripes as well. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what happens is, yeah. <laughs> like once again, was there not a bit more urgency? World War Two. So we got a Apparently bunch of not. high, high this was ranking. was a typical lead up to D-Day across uh, most of the allied forces. Just boys having the crack. So then, um, basically, yeah, we've just got a bunch of high-ranking generals who were given out to Wiseman, and uh, like Robert Ryan is egging everybody on, and then it ends up in a kind of a, a, a an almost a she's all that or Animal House type of betting situation where the boy like they're like your boys are going back to prison. And then Lee Marvin is like, well, I bet my boys could beat the fuck out of your boys. And uh, then, uh, yeah, Robert Ryan says, oh, I'd like to see that. And Ernest Borgen says, so would I. And then, <laughs> then we've got our, our finale of Stripes before a finale of our war mo- uh, movie. Now, just a, uh, do you know much about war games? Do you mean the the film? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that too. Do you know much about no, war games? No, I'm I'm not an expert on war games. 
well, just all these things, these bits and pieces that I've seen in films like this and Buffalo Soldiers is another one that comes to mind. Well, there are there are really it's a really interesting thing because like there are times where there can be sort of mavericks in war games that like like it's a, a, there was a guy called Hackworth who ran very famous war games on the Vietnam War or a, another fellow who simulated like who simulated how easily the Russians could invade from mm. um, Alaska. Um, and also there was a, a, a guy like, like, uh, a fellow who ran a war game against America about a proposed Japanese invasion before it actually happened. So like a lot of the time when war games are played out, um, they're just kind of, they're dismissed if the person is too much of a maverick and they, they, and they win basically, and they go against what the country's plan would be. The reason I'm saying this is like, um, what the lads do in the war game to win. So what they do is they they steal a bunch of the opposition's armbands. So it's like red armbands versus blue armbands, and they steal, they can choose to be on whatever side they want to be as they go. Like the thing is, it would probably be really difficult to do something like that, but that's completely not against the rules. Oh yeah. Well, there's you, the observer who's watching who doesn't seem too bothered. Yeah, and like eventually, you, you, as you say, he gets into it and he's uh, he's a hundred percent on board. You can cheat in in the in the war games if you can get away with the cheating. You know what I mean? Nice, like that. Like I mean, the the I the way that they would decipher that in the war game world would be um, to basically say, well, had you, if you had like you know researched and knew the faces of the men that you were or what yeah, kind, yeah, like their demeanor exactly, or something yeah. like that, you could lure them in and trap them, etc., etc. Anyway, long story short, they end up winning the war games. Then they have. Uh, uh, a lovely uh, Robert Ryan gets his comeuppance, and uh, then all of a sudden we're very close to actually going to do the mission. And then, in order to plan the mission, they do a rhyme. How much of the rhyme can you remember? Absolutely none. <laughs> Number one up, Donald Sutherland's bum. Oh no! Come on, man. <laughs> Number two, it's covered in poo. <laughs> number two is covered in poo. Number three. Three. Bear <laughs> number, number four. four. Kill the whore. It's the maggot whore. part. Sure. And uh, number five. It seems like a, that seems like a pretty good system, though. Actually, oh, right. for, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For, really for memorizing the, the a plan. And actually, they, they, that, show, they show them drilling it. That like this is the point where I would ha- actually have to say, uh, yeah, fuck Lee Marvin, because I think the way the way they build up towards the mission and the way you get to watch the mission be played out, I actually think works really well as an action set piece. I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was like uh, because, yeah, you basically get to watch the plan go exactly as they had planned it out, and then you get to watch how it all unravels as uh, Maggot proves to be a wild card. So basically, you get to watch. Them. You get to watch the American military perpetrate a war crime, <laughs> <laughs> as they as they slaughter a bunch of innocent women. <laughs> Nazi women. That's true. They were not innocent at all. They were whoas. Nazi whoas. Yeah. Nazi whoas. Uh, yeah. So they they got to sneak into this chateau where there is a a ball going on. I have to say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So who is it? We've got uh, Vratislav. Oh, wait, so, wait, so the, wait, the important well, one thing I wanted to mention was mm. the first person to die is Jimenez, who dies off screen. And the oh. reason for that was that Trini, Trini Lopez was like an up-and-coming singer, and one of the songs that he released uh, became really popular just around the time uh, of the film. So apparently Frank Sinatra had told Lopez that he should quit the film or that he should try to get a bigger salary. And apparently Trini, Trini <coughs> Lopez fell out with uh, Robert Aldrich and he was cut from the film. So that's why his death isn't shown. And that's what's also why his character dies in that manner. Because originally in the plan, he's supposed to go up on the roof mm. and that's given to Gilpin instead. But so it was supposed to be Jimenez who did that part. Uh, yeah, but I would put Jimenez, even though he he might have gotten a singing career, but he's definitely on the list of more expendable as far as I'm concerned. Oh, well, so. I, and let me add this. Do you know how he died in, in real life? The, the actor, Trini, Trini Lopez? I do not. He died of COVID-19. Really? Mm, yeah, just uh, about two months ago or so. Ah, it all so comes full circle. It's all, it's all, <laughs> he died of a, a fake illness, so it's, it's just like <laughs> acting. It's just like he's just pretending. Because he he's an actor, obviously, that's why he's not really dead. He died by something funded by the CIA. Exactly. Uh, just like we would end up talking he was, about. He was, killed by, he was killed by the Nazis again. Uh, um, yeah. So the opening to this plan involves uh, Vladislav and uh, Lee Marvin. <laughs> Vladislav and Lee Marvin um, popping into the chateau. I speak and, German. And then they don't want to sign their names. So their solution is to very... <laughs> Spill the ink. <laughs> what? Oops. <laughs> Oops is like, I don't know. I don't know where Nazis up for that kind of shit. Um, Nazis at this party don't seem like the most serious of the Nazis. They were just up for a good time, I think. No, they're still enjoying the European invasion. They're just like, mm. man, this is awesome. We in France. We're not and in Stalingrad. Is, it's, it's so close to D-Day. Sure, like, how confident? I'm not an expert on World War II. How confident were the Nazis at this point? Um, the, right, here's the thing. They, yeah. So it depended on how much of a fanatic you were, because the fanatics were like, you know, the Japanese fanatics. They generally just believe that the Reich was going to last forever. But right. I mean, there's a lot of writing of like a lot of people. The war was pretty much lost around 1943. And mm. a lot of a lot of Germans knew that, too. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Like the war was theoretically lost uh, or potentially lost once America joined. Um, yeah. Which like a lot of people, like a lot of people, really urged Hitler not to declare war on America just because they declared war on Japan. Just and Winston Churchill like wrote in his diary, like Winston Churchill celebrated Pearl Harbor in his diary. He's just like, <laughs> yes, the fucking Americans. <laughs> really, you can. Re- it's so yeah, funny. no, no, yeah, yeah. Um. So um. Yeah, yeah. At this point, like you would depend, like these boys in this chateau would have. It seems like they were fanatics because there was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of people like um, uh, Bacali and orgies and shit like that. Like people were just like they did not believe that the Reich could would come to an end. Right. Um. Like really, really, people bought into it. It's it's strange to think about, but it's like I mean, the, like 
you could just got to look at Joseph Goebbels' wife killing all her children. Um, mm, yeah. uh, incidents like that, and they, like that's one like fanaticism like that. You could see its strength like lived out also in the Japanese, whereas you know Benito Mussolini folded like a like like you know uh, bowed down like a a stack of cards. I'm mixing metaphors. Never no, mind. Anyway, anyway, the boys in the chateau would have been. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they seemed fairly confident, comfortable Nazis, and plus they weren't in Stalingrad. So, I mean, if you were in the German army at this at this time and you weren't in Russia, I mean, can you complain? Uh, anyway, then we get boys hopping into the window. They've paired Jefferson up with Maggot, which I don't know well, about that's, that. Well, that's you should put the put the black guy with the racist uh, woman murderer. Yeah, and I have to say, nothing's gonna, nothing is going to cause a racist to act out of line quite like putting him in, in a group with an African American, making an African, give, heaping higher esteem on said African American. Because remember, they made maggots yeah. stay up in the tower when they were with all the Rovers Return barmaids. Um, yeah. So, like, basically, Jefferson's got a bit more clout. So then, by the t- so, so you know, he's able to probably push Maggot around in front of the other boys. So then, once they get in that building and they're away from all the other boys, guess what? Maggot's going to do. He's going to act the maggot. He's gonna. Yeah. He, he's just going to be a. And that's exactly what he does. And Jefferson's like, "Fucking be cool, you son of a." But this this fucking guy, he basically sniffs a woman out in the corridor and just blatantly steps Stabs out. Her. And fuck, yeah, first of all, she screams, and then the German general he tells down below. her to scream. He instructs yeah. her to scream, and then he sort of like she Wait, forces she... her onto his knife. Well, hold on. First of all, she, he makes her scream. Then um, <coughs> the German generals below uh, are like, oh, somebody's having a bit of fun. Yeah, someone's, having, someone's having a typical nice Nazi evening. And But then it's kind of. All the stuff that Maggot had been saying early in the movie about him having a special power over women kind of proves yeah, she to be seems, true. She, yes, she seems she seems up for it, but then she she's, walks into his knife. She's up for a bit of Maggot, but then yeah, he stabs her to death and then just starts shooting around the place, and it's like you mother, you motherfucker. Yeah, this guy's fucked everything up. Yeah, um, what um. Donald Sutherland manages to survive a Pinkly. bizarre amount of time uh, for a man standing in front of the building. But like <laughs> yeah. I said, I liked this action scene because like, I've said it to you before, I, li- I like it when you yeah, can feel, you, the, yeah, yeah. feel the geography of an action scene and you really know where you are with everything that's happening in this one. Yeah, um, yeah, because we know exactly where the characters are supposed to go because we've had a nice little rhyme to remind us. Exactly. To Ser- us. Serve the purpose of a mini Teletubbies type narrator for you there, yeah. Andy. Uh, so yeah, so then basically all the Nazis and all their Nazi ladies get herded down to the basement and they heap a fuck ton of grenades and gasoline on top of them in, yeah. Classic. I mean, it's definitely breaking Geneva Conventions, isn't it? Yeah, that that's, it's got, it's got to be frowned on at the very least. Yeah, it's not cool. It's not good. That level of murdering civilians <laughs> along with uh, <laughs> military personnel. Yeah, but tor- before, in, in in like torturing them basically, burning before, them to death. Before you know it, they're all so they haven't quite uh, lit off the grenades yet because that ends up being Jefferson's job. But before they're um, before they're away, they're surrounded by Nazis on almost all fronts. Now I gotta ask you, 
who do you think gets the most memorable death? Because also, at one point when I'm watching it, I... Maybe going, Jefferson? Probably Jefferson. At one point when I'm watching it, I'm going, oh shit, they're all going to die. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, I was... I, um, I wasn't... I was surprised that only two of them survived. Because I... I Well, I, actually, I don't know. I mean... Uh, once they once they start getting picked off, you do kind of feel like okay, there's a massive amount of uh, Nazi troop. There's a lot of German troops around. There's a high potential for people to um, to be shot. I guess I was surprised that Char- the the Charles Bronson's character survived. Yeah, that was my other kind I, of thing. Of maybe that was in his contract. Mm, yeah, possibly. Maybe I don't know. Um. Yeah, I can't think. I I don't know. Have I seen him die in a movie? Uh, does he die in one of the Death Wish films? I can just think of the scene from The Simpsons where they have like now next Death Wish five or something, and he's just him in the in the hospital bed going, "I wish I was dead." <laughs> the Death Wish films are horrific. Yeah, they're really rough going really nasty movies i remember like i remember as a child you just see a, something called death wish and maybe this is something that's wrong with my programming but i thought oh that'll be a fun movie and i just thought it'd be like a cop movie or something and then you're just treated to just a fucking brutal home invasion gang rape and then it doesn't matter that the next, rest of the movie he's a vigilante it's just imp- as a child it's impossible to get over the uh, home invasion gang rape Especially since one of the rapists is Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, that's right. Disturbing. Indeed it is. Uh, so anyway, Lee Marvin and um, uh, Vl- Vladislav, they make it to the coast, uh, which must have been a fun uh, ride in a weird tractor tank kind of thing. No, <laughs> yeah. It must yeah, have been I, a very... I want to watch that film, like the kind of straight straight story, <laughs> just the journey of, of them and their little tractor thing. Well, it's They're like, you mentioned that, but like, you know what's one of the coolest uh, sequences in um, Band of Brothers is, you know, where they get lost on the first jump and they're just wandering around the countryside in the dark. Yeah. I love that sequence of events. Even this, watching this was, that made me think like, maybe I should rewatch Band of Brothers. Do I have 10 hours or however, or however many hours it is spare? You do. How many times do you think you've watched Band of Brothers? Oh, maybe three maximum. I I could watch it, you know, a million more. I'd be very I've, happy. Yeah, I've I've seen that a lot of times, and yeah, I could I could easily uh, watch it again. Any episode, although if I was going to go for any, it'd be probably Lieutenant Spears jumping over the wall. That's quite a fun episode. I uh, uh, I I mean, I enjoy watching Ross uh, running into <laughs> problems. Even that's always good. He is the best friend, Captain uh, Sobel. Anyway, so the boys. Don't all die, which was quite a surprise in the end. Yeah, they um, get Bronson and Lee Marvin to hang out with Walton Goggins uh, at the end. Yeah, uh, I gotta say, I quite liked this, uh, and there's a reason it is a Bank Holiday Monday movie. In that, I'll probably never seek out to watch this again. But I will no. neither will I ever continue flicking channels if I find that it is on. Yeah, it's now that you've seen the entire thing. I mean. Because I must have seen bits of this when I was younger, but I filtered it out. But having seen the entire thing, you can see that, like structurally, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of fun set pieces. Um, I'm, su- 
I'm surprised they don't have a you've been watching at the end of it. You know those credit sequences? What were you? They show you each individual person. Or... Yeah, and they kind of break the fourth wall and say yeah, hello. Yeah, he's smiling at the, hey, it's me, I'm dead now, smiling at the screen. Do you know it's a bizarre movie that has one of those? I mean, it, it's Schindler's the movie. List. <laughs> no, Predator has one. Oh, yeah, that's fun. That's nice. It's them turning to the camera going like. Yeah. It is. But I don't. I. I don't think any of them seem to predict how huge the movie would become. Because why is that at the end of the movie? It's just bizarre. It's just mental. Yeah, I enjoyed was, this film, and uh, I. Uh, I would be interested in watching a few more sort of these similar men, men, men on mission, men with Ven uh, type things. Uh, one more that I thought of just when we were talking about uh, Jefferson's death because he gets this uh, he gets a kind of a Von Ryan's Express death. Have you ever seen Von Ryan's Express? No. Nah. The Frank Sinatra movie. That's a good one. That's a oh, okay. that's that's a good Men on a Mission movie. Oh, okay. I like that. And actually, even though it's super long, Bridge on the River Kwai has. Elements. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Bridge on the River Kwai. I enjoyed that. If yeah, you yeah. can enjoy that. And I definitely can. Yeah. That's the thing is, well, like I told you very recently, I went to see um, Lawrence of Arabia in the cinema mm. and like, okay, nobody gets away with making movies like that anymore. But he, David, because I've recently as well, I also watched Bridge in the River Kwai. I have to say, if anybody has stupidly long movies down to a fine <laughs> art, David, it, was, David it, was, it was fucking David Lean. And the trick is, because they do the same thing in Bridge in the River Kwai, the trick is... Like you just make your shots wide enough, just to show your massive cast and your massive location. Your 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 lovely on on location shoot, and you're just kind of going at this point, like particularly like with Lawrence of Arabia, just the landscapes and the hundreds of fucking lads galloping across the desert on horse. You're you're kind of going, I I could watch this for quite a while. Like it's just so staggeringly beautiful to see it on a big screen. Anyway. So, yeah, the other film that we watched was Rafifi, which uh, in French is De Rafifi Chez les Hommes. And it's a 1955 French crime film adaptation of Auguste Le Breton's novel of the same name. Uh, Francis title... Truffaut said it was the worst crime novel ever and the best crime movie and the best ever. Crime movie, yeah, best crime movie adaptation. So the title is from world war one french military slang you told me it was a type of pastry <laughs> i believed that that's what i was i went into the film i was shocked that there was very little pastry in it i kind I, of hoped did i tell I hoped, you that this was a bit... <laughs> that's what i understood i understood something about pastry anyway the title <laughs> the title is, is the title is World War I French military slang. Uh, it's almost untranslatable into English. The closest attempts have been rough and tumble and pitched battle. Hmm. Bedio Rafifi. It was directed by blacklisted American filmmaker Jules Dassin, which, oh, yeah. again, because the first time I read the name, I was like, oh, yes, this is by the filmmaker Jules Dassin. <laughs> but, uh, he, was, he was born. He was born in Connecticut and raised was, in New York. He was Jules Dassin. Jules Dassin, and uh, so the film stars Jean Servet as the aging gangster Tony Le Stéphanois. Do you know what a Stéphanois is? No, go on. It's someone from Saint Etienne because that's Saint Stephen. 
I had absolutely no idea, and I'm embarrassed to say uh, I've, been, I've 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 been there many times because I lived in Lyon, which is like Lyon, which is like like a neighboring city. I so had no idea that that's what that means. He's a Stefanois. All of them, all yeah. of the, those nicknames that they have are where they're from, and they call them the the Stefanois. Like Stefanois, yeah. he's uh, the guy from the guy from Saint Etienne. I thought uh, my subtitles were acting up. No, Joe Joe is played by Karl Müller, who's uh, who was an Austrian guy, but his character was called the the Le, Le Suédois. He was Swedish, supposedly, and the other two characters <coughs> other two characters were Robert Manuel as Mario Ferrati, mm-hmm. and Jules Dassin himself played uh, Cesar or Cesare Le Milanese, the guy from Milan. And the film tells the story of four criminals working together to knock over an exclusive Parisian jewellery store before having to deal with the inevitable fallout of the heist. The film earned... I'll give you a bit more back... Just a little bit more background here. The film earned earned Dassin the award for Best Director at the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. Rafifi was also re-released theatrically in both 2000 and 2015 and is still highly acclaimed by modern film critics as one of the greatest works in French film noir. Nice. All right, good choice, Donica. Yeah, well done. I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed this film. I I think prior to starting to this podcast I'd mentioned to you that like I wasn't a big fan of black and white films, so Watching the killing and watching this, it's it's again, it's uh, it, it's interesting to see how effective, how effective a film from nineteen fifty five can be. Sorry, and also Wages of Fear. Let's not forget that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm glad to see. Uh, well, to be honest, I'm glad to see. But I mean, I yeah, I basically, uh, I hope this doesn't sound patronizing, but I just kind of knew that you hadn't seen the right ones. Let's say because there's just, just so much good stuff out there. Yeah, definitely. I'm. I'm. I. I. Agree wholeheartedly now. Um, How much? Uh, yeah. Why I was, was he gonna, blacklisted? Yeah, I was going to ask about yeah, like Jules Dassin. How much do you know about his his biography of his Absolute. blacklisting, etc.? I purposefully Nothing. do not look up things so you can know. Oh, right. How much okay. do you know? <laughs> That's great because I do keep asking that question uh, frequently. And I love so it. So basically, Jules Dassin was a member of the Communist Party. He was actually a member Literally. of the Communist Party. Yes. Okay, well, and I mean, his entire his entire uh, interactions with like Huac and all of that were that he refused to disavow the Communist Party ever. Uh, another filmmaker who had been arrested testified against Dassin and about eleven other people. Was it Aliyah Kazan? The dirt, the the dirty dozen. No, it was someone I hadn't heard of before. And um, so Dassin was blacklisted, and then he had to move to Europe. He was eventually given uh, Rafifi, and that kind of launched his career. After that, he married Melina Mercuri, who's a famous Greek actress. And the, he ended up living in Greece because she was a member of, of the Greek parliament, like later on in life. And mm. so Jules, Jules Dassin is, he's very highly regarded in Greece for everything that him and his wife did in terms of like trying to get the Elgin marbles back from the UK and 
So he he's very highly thought of in in Greece, which is where he spent a lot of his uh, his later life. It's weird that so many Hollywood types gravitated towards the old communism, isn't it? Yeah. Well, is it though? Because it feels like I mean, it makes sense that if people in the arts are more likely to be socialist and possibly communist also because yeah maybe maybe there's a there's a change at a certain point but i i you think you see a lot of people who are in the arts who are not particularly they're not particularly bothered about having money or anything they're just they're like i do it for the i do it for the for creating art i suppose the same bullshit is going on today in a different way though definitely definitely yeah yeah yeah, there's a lot of that uh in general for sure the black the like uh the the interesting movie about the Hollywood blacklist, I th- I still think has kind of yet to be made as well. To be honest, well, um, like there are yeah. there are two that go for it. Um, good night and good luck is interesting. It's not fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that one with Louis C.K. and Brian Cranston. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was thinking about yeah, yeah, the 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 one with Brian Trumbo. Cranston. Trumbo, Trumbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think no, there there's more interesting stuff to be made. Like cause some really fascinating stuff happened. Like. Humphrey oh, Bo- the, the other one I can think of is the majestic, the Frank Darabont film with uh, n- with with, with uh, Jim Jim Carrey. I've never watched that. Is it good? I really liked it. I, I it wasn't that highly thought of at the time. I remember, but I really enjoyed it. I would be interested in rewatching that at some point. Uh, well, Frank Darabont. I mean. Yeah, yeah, I mean, come on, on, he's like, I mean, he's yeah. He's got a tight some track record. Talk us through the beginning of, of Rafifi. So, any, well, uh, just to give you uh, just a bit more background here, Dassin wrote Go the screenplay it. to Rafifi in six days with the help of screenwriter Rene Wheeler. Jesus cutting, Christ. He cut out a lot of the anti-Arab uh, undertones from the, the original novel. Good, I didn't origi- like those. Originally, the bad guy was uh, the the bad guys were like a gang of Arab guys. So they, he renamed the 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 main baddie Gruter, sounding kind of like Germanic. But then they cast they cast like a really uh, like clearly Arab guy though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, they he took the high scene, which was only a small part of the novel, and expanded it to take up a quarter of the runtime. Yeah, which I uh, loved. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, it was a really low budget film. Uh, Rafifi was filmed during the winter time in Paris and used real locations rather than studio sets. And uh, due to the low budget, the locations were scouted by Dassin himself. So he was just basically running around Paris trying to find all of these locations. And they did a lot of you know shooting in the streets, guerrilla uh, but- style. It's just wonderful, though. It is like, great. It's really nice watching them go across, going across Paris of 1950. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's one scene where people are just leaning out a window and you're seeing cars and pedestrians go by. And it just, yeah, it just has that feeling like when people can make that thing work right, there's nothing yeah. like it. There's nothing like it. Uh, Dassin's fee for writing, directing and acting was 8,000 US dollars. But uh, luckily, he was a communist, so it was fine. <laughs> Eight thousand US dollars, which in today's money is one point seven billion Vietnamese dong. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I had to calculate that. I had to do a lot of calculations to get that. <laughs> or seventy-seven thousand US dollars. <laughs> <laughs> both 
your rug pull of a joke and the fact that their currency <laughs> is called dong are just making me yeah, laugh great. two different parts of my brain. Uh, right. that's, the, that's the film nice. was the film was banned in some countries due to its heist scene. It was referred to by the Los Angeles Times reviewer as a master class in breaking and entering as well as filmmaking. Which is huh. great. Oh, here's the last little bit about uh, Dassin's communism. So the film, <laughs> Dassin's communism, that's a good thing. The film was offered distribution in the United States on the condition that Dassin renounced his past, declaring that he was duped into subversive associations. Otherwise, his name would be removed from the film as the writer and director. Dassin huh. refused, and the film was released by United Artists, who set up a dummy corporation as a distributing company. The film was distributed successfully in America and with, with Dassin listed in the credits. In this way, he was the first to break the Hollywood blacklist, allegedly. By writing under different names and things like that. By his name, by him being on the blacklist and yet he, him a film with his name on it being released in the USA. Okay. So he, yeah, got, around, he got around the blacklist. Because other boys just... Went to, like Trumbull went to Mexico and wrote Spartacus under another name, I believe. Mm, Senor, Senor Trumbull. Yeah, exactly. They went for Senor it. Trumbull. Okay, so the film opens with Tony, the Stefan Stefanois at a card game, uh, getting rinsed by some gangster types. He ends up calling his mate Joe, who's at home playing with his son. Joe rushes over to stake Tony introducing the characters as hoodlums with a strong bond. We find out that Tony took the rap for Joe on a job gone wrong and served five years in prison. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice little intro. It is, yeah. I mean, it is men. It's men smoking and drinking in a bar. And yeah, it's like... In a club. What better way to uh, introduce your character as a bit of a down on his luck degenerate than uh, you know hi- him greeting the morning a from a from, from a from a cash poker game, uh, yeah, yeah, where he's all bought out, and yeah, Joe then has his nice uh, family life. It was a nice able contrast, and then so then uh, oh, I'll keep going. The pair go over to a bar for a drink and to meet Mario, an Italian chap who informs them about a smash-and-grab robbery on a high-end jewellery store. The plan is to drive up to the window in broad daylight, smash it, and grab a bunch of stones. But Tony is less than impressed with this shoddy plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Yeah, I thought there were, there were echoes of wages of uh, fear here. We've got the French and the Italians working together. Although this Mario, this Mario feels more like a Luigi to me than a Mario. Um, yeah, particularly with the skullduggery he seems to be getting up to with his lady. I have to say, by the way. Oh wait, but um, that that would that would be more Mario than it would be Luigi, no? Because he it? has he he has elements of Mario and Luigi. Listen to the Wages of Fear episode if you're confused by this. I have to say the um. Uh, the caliber of black and white lady in this film is through the roof. Oh yeah, I'll be commenting on that shortly mm. in a bit. Go so for it, um, Tony finds out that his ex bird Maddo has shacked up with a local hard man called Gruter in Tony's absence. So he heads over to the club where she works, uh, tells the guy that she's with to pound sand, and goes for a private conversation with her. 
Um, and then, uh, yeah, so Tony tells her to take off the expensive jewelry and fur coat, which are clearly well, from Gruter. Back to his then, house first of all. Oh yeah, well yeah, and then tells her to keep. He tells her to keep stripping. Then he grabs a belt and whips her violently off screen for being a goddamn hua. And yeah. then he kicks her. Then he then he kicks her out of his apartment. It's pretty hardcore. That it is. Uh, I don't. I mean, he invites her over to his house so that he can abuse her. Yeah, like I mean, just, it's just <laughs> like, listen, I'm not just going to I'm not going to hit you with a belt here in this club. Come back to my house first for come back to my house first for 30 seconds. Yeah, like before this I isn't, kick you out. Because it's like, OK, I mean, we'll get to the ending eventually, but uh, it's a fairly unforgettable moment for his character. You know, you're like even like I can't imagine He's not the most. He's not the most sympathetic of characters, though. No, he's not. No, no, no. I am. But, but I think like, that's on purpose. Yeah, yeah. I think so Literally. too. Yeah, because they they're like, um, yeah. This is crime hadn't started paying for criminals yet in movies no, at this no, point. No, no, because morally, it's like Kubrick in the Killing. He had. He felt the need to show that criminals don't succeed. And obviously, this is an adaptation of a novel as well. But um, yeah, crime doesn't pay, kids. Which makes more sense because at the time, it looks very easy to commit crime. There's yes. no, there's no CSI. You can just smack a policeman over the head, steal a car, and, and drive away, and not worry about it. Like it makes sense to be a criminal. So you would have to try and dissuade the general public from from crime because it looks so easy at this point to be a criminal well yeah i mean their first idea for a heist is, for a heist is to smash the window <laughs> smash up a window and grab the things Genius. it's not a, it's not it's not a, man if somebody <laughs> if somebody called me for a meeting in a cafe and told that they told me that was their plan i'd be furious I'd be like what yeah you're wasting my goddamn time so next it's over to mario's house where uh, the wee Italian is getting a soapy massage from his good lady, uh, a lady whose breasts look primed to explode out of her bra at any second. Nice. Uh, Some, something about the word you, the way you say the word breasts, Andy, is just <laughs> pure, pure class. It's just I'm, channel, I'm channeling my inner maggot. <laughs> it's just, just uh, the classy. It's just yeah. Thanks. Her breasts. Well, we we got we got a long way to go. So Tony and Joe tell Mario that they're up uh, uh, that they're up for the job, uh, but not in the retard bingo approach previously suggested by the cheeky <laughs> Italian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is essentially what he does. Is like he calls him up. Yeah, we're gonna do it's it. Not your fucking. Not your. Not your fucking stupid plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's oh retard uh, bingo, retard bingo. This is was. it. I'm, I'm good. Uh, it's Riddick. That's from Riddick. Ah, uh, your reference game is sick, bro. Yeah, I'm referencing other films from other episodes throughout. Where, this. Uh, Chase, where'd you where where'd you pull that, that reference out of a unicorn's ass? Exactly. So nice. Mario Mario calls up his good mate Caesar or Cesare, the best safe cracker in all of Milan. Um. They all so so then eventually you know Caesar turns up. They all head for a night out at Gruter's club. We get to hear the titular song being sung by a young lady extolling the virtues of men who are unafraid to give women a slap, like the Sean Connerys of the world. 
Because oh. that's what all girls want, a bit of Rafifi. Uh, also, the, yeah, we've been, it's, he's been talked about, referred to already, but the defining character of the other Italian man we're going to meet, Caesar, is he, mm. likes the, he likes the ladies. Yeah, Caesar the Italian man also appears in a surprising turn of events to be a helpless womanizer mm. and uh, decides to get fired into the, the nightclub singer Viviane, who sings the Rafifi song. Who's really tidy? Yeah, this is, this is yeah. It's uh, it reminds me of um, what was her name from Wages of Fear? I can't remember. I can't most... remember her name as well. The nice uh, Brazilian lady from Wages of Fear. The most pathetic character. <laughs> the, 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 uh, yeah, and in Sor- in Sorcerer, the the horrible uh, the, the goblin, the, tr- the goblin-like creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Her name is Lin- Linda, of course. Linda, Linda. yes. Go, Linda. Linda. Uh, yeah. Me. Yeah. So th- these are top shelf, shelf black yeah. and white women in this Absolutely. film. Absolutely. It was a different time. Uh, unfortunately, the lady who played Mado died at the age of 36, just a few years after this, similar to Linda. I don't know what they were doing. She had leukemia. Um, the actress who played uh, her name was Jean Soubere. Jean Soubere, I'm not sure, but Shit. Uh, yeah, she died unfortunately. So yeah, there was a lot of bad, apparently rough times in the 1950s and 60s. By Poor all old doll. Um. So yeah, around this time we see the characters casing the store, kind of learning the movements of police patrols, etc., putting mm-hmm. in the necessary work for the job. It's uh, cool. We have, yeah, and then we have that nice fun scene where they figure out how to disarm the alarm. Yeah, it's very Danny Ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, and the, Ocean's Eleven was supposedly heav- heavily inspired by this as well, the original Ocean's Eleven. Huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, I mean, possibly, the Sod- and possibly the Soderbergh one, seeing as Steven Soderbergh is referenced in almost every episode that we do. As yeah. having watched the film and said, oh, I like that, I'm having that. I'm having Similar that, exactly. Tarantino. Yeah. It's Tarantino and Soderbergh all the way through, just lifting things from, uh, from classic film. Consid- like, I love that, house- that heist films are never af- about the heist at all. Like, well, it's about and- the characters. Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's just like, <laughs> like even this film, which, yeah, does give like almost a quarter of the film to the heist and the technicalities of it and how they pull it off. Like really and truly, you're just there watching it because you've had an introduction to all of these guys and their lives. I mean, fair enough. Mario's got a sweet enough situation going with his uh, girlfriend that used, like used to be a dancer at the club and now she's his bird, etc. But it's just like the desperation of uh, your man, our main guy, Joe. Is yeah. the like uh, Tony. Yeah, yeah. Tony. To- Tony, yeah, yeah, just the the desperation of him. You just know that uh, he's going to be the fucking undoing of everybody. Tony, Tony, Tony. Although he's not the undoing of everybody, is he? No. No, no. uh, That's fucking Cesare. Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The womanizer that's gone and done him in. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel that, yeah, I agree with what you're saying about the characters. But the other thing I feel that, like, one of the main strengths of the film and of a lot of heist films is watching like a group of people, a group of men, like they're just working through and solving problems intelligently. They're yeah, masters yeah. of their craft. It's competence porn. It's just watching people do something, working yeah. through problems. And 
though that's the correct choices. Though that said, I mean, look how easy it was to get to be a Mission Impossible type back in the day. You just had to use yeah, a fire a fire extinguisher, <laughs> fire extinguisher to put foam into an alarm. Yeah, yeah, and that, and like, like the here. Ah. Here's the thing with alarms back in the day, they didn't automatically call the police. They literally just yeah, made a loud just noise. Made a noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All you had to do was stop well, they, the noise. Well, the other, the the so they they drill a hole through the ceiling of the shop because they the, the, when the 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 heist starts, it's a, a silent section of the film that all they have is just the the natural uh, audio. This the just kind of um, oh yeah. There's no there's there's no talking effects. for there's no dialogue for about mm. half an hour. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's... Yeah, so the heist itself is around thirty minutes of screen time with only natural background noise and essentially no dialogue. Uh, so yeah, they, and it, it's it's fucking spellbinding as well. Yes, it's great. It's it's very very effective. So they they drill a hole through the ceiling of the shop from a, the upstairs apartment that they've broken into. <coughs> then they use this ingenious umbrella method of yes. uh, putting an umbrella down through the through that hole so that they can they can catch any falling rubble from expanding the hole yeah which yeah, is genius it is genius it's you clever watch it as and fuck, you're like yeah. that it's clever yeah, yeah. so finally they 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 crack the safe uh importantly caesar lingers a little to steal a piece of jewelry he had his eye on uh when he was doing some scouting of the store and upon leaving the shop, Tony notices that some police are inspecting the getaway car. So he runs over and smacks one of the cops on the head, steals the car, and drives off with his accomplices. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, to, not, 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 not to pick apart, but why are they expecting the, inspecting the getaway car? I don't. I, I didn't get that. Eh, because they found a car. Because apparently, like the the. Police officers that were doing the rounds were just looking for anything that was out of place, and they. Oh no, I remember the police officer had a list of uh, of stolen cars in his notebook, and it had the same license plate number as what as the as a stolen car in his notebook, so he knew it was stolen. But I think my question is, why do they bother with a with a getaway car? Can they just walk away at that point? They've already successfully completed the heist. Just leave the car. Yeah, better you without a car. Need a car? Just yeah, 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 just go in different directions and walk away. Like you're not being observed. It's 1955. Is there a, a movie heist that you enjoy particularly? I like the one in Rafifi. <laughs> Me too. Um, I mean, I'll... I'm always I'm a a fan of a heist that you don't see in Reservoir Dogs. Just the 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 story of the heist. I love the getaway, the opening heist for Heat. I I just oh think yeah, that, of course, of course. That's just so snappy. If it wasn't for fucking Wayne Grow, anyway. Kanye West was referencing Wayne Grow on Joe Rogan the other day. Oh, that's nice. I uh, yeah. I always enjoy uh, a bit of the old Wayne Grow. You don't know what this is. That's what he says before he kills the uh, the young black prostitute. Yes, a, indeed. A maggot, uh, a maggot move. Yeah, it is a very maggot move, to be fair. They're cut from the um, same cloth. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, so they get back to Mario's house and admire the jewels, a.k.a. his wife's breasts, uh, <laughs> before before looking at the stones they stole in the robbery. Oh, and she answers in her underpants. 
she has this is I think this is the, this is the scene where she you can you see her nipples. You can see her nipples. I must yep. go back. Oh, uh, I was watch I was watching this on a projector. So ah, uh, nice. Was big. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, she, yeah. She's, so then, what were you gonna say? She's she's a nice looking lady. That lady. She is. She's a lovely a lovely lass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Indeed. with the with the stones stashed, Joe goes off to London to meet the fence. Uh, in another scene, Maddo leaves big nasty Gruter. So Gruter sends his heroin addicted lackey to go kill Tony. Before Gruter discovers that Viviane is wearing a ring taken in the heist, which it turns out was given to her by Caesar, a man who at various times in the film is called Spaghetti and Macaroni. <laughs> in an escalating in an escalating cycle of pasta based anti Italian sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did actually notice that. Because spaghetti and macaroni. As if they don't find both of those things delicious. Yep, indeed. Just like the just like the ladies love Caesar because he's that um, scene with the um that scene with the brother where the brother gets high. How does the brother get high? Oh, is that his brother? I didn't even know it was his brother. I thought it was just his little henchman. Yeah, no, it's his brother. It's his junkie brother. Ah. Um, but like, so he yeah, he sniffs. Uh, he sniffs heroin, which seems like a bad idea, right? Is that what happens? Okay, fair. I enough. think so. He gives him some some. I was surprised that he, it does make sense that they're brothers because I was thinking of it from like a sort of boss and employee perspective. He seems awfully. He he doesn't seem that bothered about his. His, his 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 lackey, as I said, sort of trying to break into his drawer to get heroin out of it. Yeah, no, Here's no, the no. Key. Here you go. Here's He's all the heroin brother. you Listen. want. So then he yeah he gives him all the money to yeah. <laughs> because all because the... Maddo decided to return to her abusive relationship as um as you uh, did in nineteen fifty five. As unfortunately, as he, as he did in 1955, yes. So then uh, Gruter beats and ties Caesar up. And oh, th- goes, this scene is hardcore, man. Then he goes over and uh, kills Mario and his lady when they yeah. refuse to give up and then warn Tony. Yeah, yeah, because they warn Tony over the phone and then bang, bang, they're both dead. Is That's a... That's a cold it is, scene. It is because it's they. You're not even that sure that they were definitely going to kill them. I mean, they didn't kill Caesar. No, and, and as well, so they probably would have. I think they would have let if Mario and his wife had given up Tony. I think they would have lived. I think they would have been around. And like, I don't. I assume casting directors put thought into decisions like this. But like, like Mario and his missus are just the two sort of nicest looking people yeah, in the whole yeah, in the whole yeah, movie. Yeah. They just they yeah, just they look, look like they look wholesome. They're a wholesome they, couple. They just look fun and they're in love. You, and stuff. you see them, yeah. You see them having fun and doing the soapy the bath massage. And then, like, yeah, and his plan to with his money is just to test out all the different uh, bed uh, beds in the hotels in the city, yeah. and that, you know. And then all it of a sudden, nice. in five seconds, they're dead. And like, yeah, yeah, dead. he got shot up. So then uh, Tony goes over to Gruter's club to find Caesar or Lasagna, as I call him, uh, <laughs> tied up, <laughs> tied up to a pole. Uh, when it is revealed that he broke the code of Omuerta and gave up his mate Mario, Tony reminds him of the rules of being a gangster before killing him. For shooting him. 
Now, yeah, so this scene was not included in the novel and is said to represent Dasson getting his own back on those who testified against alleged communists in front of Huac. Elia Kazan. Pium pium, getting was shot. It, so that's Kazan getting getting gunned. He he's what, getting got. Was uh, was Dasson one of the people Kazan gave up? Because people still hold grudges about that. Like, I'll tell a, you. Let me find the person's name. It definitely wasn't Elia Kazan because it wasn't someone that I had. It wasn't someone I was familiar with. Have you ever seen the footage of when Elia Kazan was getting his Lifetime Achievement Award and like half the audience did everyone boo? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, half the audience. Well, no, half the audience is just on their feet with their with their arms folded, and like he's being flanked onto the stage by Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. When was that? I'm not sure. Um, young enough that uh, Robert De Niro's hair was dark grey and longer. Uh, Edward Dimitrik and Frank Tuttle. Uh, recalled Mr. Dassin's Communist Party membership in the 1930s. It was this guy, uh, Edward Dimitrik, who I think he testified against like 12, uh, 12 people. And that was, that was what got Dassin. That's and what he got done in on. Then ultimately what got uh, Cesar murdered in a group's Indeed. Yeah, Indeed, yeah, yeah. which is weird because Cesar is Dassin. So <laughs> Dassin g- killed himself on screen. Huh? To show what the com- to show what the communists did. Hold on. Cesar is Dassin. Dassin is playing Cesar. Dassin is the actor, yeah. Dassin is Oh, the, uh, I didn't Jules, know that. Jules Jules Dassin is the actor playing Cesar. Or Cesare. Ah, oh, did not know that, but now so I do know that. He depicted his own death on screen for being someone who who broke rules bizarrely even though he was uh labeling this charge at the others who who broke the code against him yeah he was shooting up the the rats in that scene in the in the film then then the next we, we get the funerals uh yeah so, well, the next thing I've got is that Gruter and his pet junkie grab Joe's kid in the street. I think that's just after a funeral. Just after the funeral, yeah. yeah I, I just I, I just thought the funerals are worried, you know, because they're kind of at a we particularly with the location shooting. Uh, they kinda, oh, yeah, it's, it is beautiful. It's nice to to, yeah. to see these. Uh, it again, adds a weird, a weird kind of a weird kind of gravity to it as well because. I don't know, you're, you're used to people being bumped off in films like this all the time, but then just there's, yeah. funer- there's funerals also, and of course they're yeah. expecting people to go up. But then, yeah, uh, Joe's kid so, gets yeah. snatched. Yeah, Gruter and, his, and, his, and his, his brother grab Joe's kid in the street to trade for the stones. Maddo goes to Tony and tells him where Gruter is hiding out. Tony follows a drug dealer to the address and kills, Dr- kills Gruter's brother before rescuing Joe's son. However, due to the, the lack of 4G signal out at the villa, Joe still believes that Gruter has his son, and so he takes a suitcase of cash from the fencing of the stones to trade for his son. And this is where we end up with a sort of uh, an ending of, well, where things turn to shit, basically, because yeah. Gruter ends up killing Joe and mortally wounding Tony before Tony... Uh, Kills Gruter, 
and then Tony takes Joe's son, who he'd left. He 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 dropped Joe's son off previously at uh, at a little uh, diner type thing. Then Tony drives Joe's son back to his mother whilst he's suffering from blood loss. Yeah, eventually, he's bleeding Tony, down through his leg. Eventually, yeah. yeah, eventually Tony dies in the driver's seat just in front of the house. Joe's wife races over to grab her son as law enforcement descend on the scene, claiming both Tony's corpse and the suitcase of heist cash. So, yeah, crime, why crime the doesn't f- pay, kiddies? Why the fuck couldn't out. couldn't the mother get the cash? <sighs> she didn't want the cash. She didn't care. She has her son. Yeah, and she says she that was, other was, thing to Joe. Yeah, she, she calls Joe a hoodlum or a, uh, a gangster, criminal. She says the, not the, happy. Yeah, the other men who didn't become gangsters, yeah, maybe they, they, they were, were, yeah. They, maybe they were right. the she, strong men. She calls men, him a Joe. coward. Yeah, she calls him a, a weak man for being a gangster. Yeah, um, overall, uh, I thought this was uh, absolutely terrific. Um, yeah, it, stands, would, it's, it definitely holds up. I was really, really gripped throughout. It's, it's really, um, and as well, it's, it just goes to show how much of the impact of violence you can get across without being gratuitous. And I'm not saying I don't like gratuitous. I do like gratuitous. Uh, but like, if, for instance, in that scene where Joe welts Maddo with a belt, I'm pretty sure that carries almost as much gravity as it would if we had, if we saw it. And I think that's mostly on account of the, of, him telling her to get undressed which direction i think it has i think it it reminds me a bit of the reservoir dog's ear cutting i think it's much stronger that you don't see it well there we are like i mean uh, yeah yeah and there are other instances of that in this film like um yeah well like uh, what i was saying about um where mario and his missus get clipped like that's mm-hmm. ha- when that happens. That's hardcore. That's uh, like uh, that was a jaw dropper for me. I was like, that Whoa. one. That also that also kind of cuts away as they're yeah 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 as the shooting occurs. Yeah, and then you just see them both lying and it's, there. It's very effectively edited for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, it's like, definitely. Yeah, the, it's the, a, the, just this like chaotic second, and then you see the aftermath. Yeah, I thought it was it's, absolutely it's nice. terrific. Uh, I would like to. Jason uh, was a pro. Yeah, I would like to see. Um, some he has more. a fee. He had a, a another film that he made was supposedly kind of um, all was also a heist film that was I think quite quite well received. It was called uh, Top Top Cappy, which I think uh, was the film he made in uh, Istanbul. And there, I'll, starring there is, his wife. There's another one that he's quite uh, famous for as well, called uh, "The Naked City," which he made before, um, which would be kind. Of, uh, he made before he was blacklisted. All right, man, that was a really good week for uh, for the for the flicks. I must say, uh, I really Absolutely. enjoyed both of them. I enjoyed Rafifi more. I'd say Rafifi was the winner of the two. Yeah, I mean, it's a better film, no question. It, oh, it is. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and it's the sort of thing, it, like, it, like I'm not saying exactly. That this is is what what happened with you, but it's the sort of film that yeah you could just dump in the lap of somebody who was completely averse to I don't know black and white films or foreign films or anything like that, and yeah, I'm pretty sure you'd win over a lot of people who would have been definitely, sworn against definitely. that kind of crack. Holds up quite well. All right, cool. So what have you got for the uh, for the chopping block this week? Okay, so for the toss this week, uh, I chose the 2013 Korean sci-fi action film Snowpiercer. 
directed by Bong Joon-ho, because I like trains. Choo-choo. <laughs> um, and mine, I'm taking my cue from your settling on the Korean peninsula, and mine is going to be the South Korean erotic psychological thriller directed by Park Chan-wook, uh, The Handmaiden, which allegedly has loads and loads of fleshy bits in it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your options this week for tossing are 50 or some kind of uh, lady. Uh, give me the 50. Uh, it is lady. Motherfucker, that's three in a row for you, you <laughs> cunt. And it's not even, it's, I'm not even, I haven't been tossing the entire time. I don't know what's going on. No, all right. Well, in that case, we will be watching Snowpiercer, which I have seen already, but I did enjoy it, and it's been a fair few years. Um, and I kind of, from for an opposition to that film, I'm gonna keep with the dystopian route, but I'm I I also feel like something a little bit sexy, so I'm gonna follow the advice of Ross Geller from Friends, and uh, we're gonna watch. I've never seen it Jurassic before. Jurassic Park. For the first time, the sexiest movie ever. Uh, do you remember what Ross Geller refers to as the sexiest movie ever? I'm afraid my knowledge of Friends isn't quite up to yours. The sexiest movie ever is Logan's Run. We'll be watching. Oh, okay. Logan. Have you ever seen Logan's Run? No, but I can see that. Uh, I, again, I might have watched it when I was a kid, but it does star Jenny Agutter, right? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yes, it does. It, sure? it does. It's, it's, Jenny Agatha's in it. So uh, we're back that, on that. Is that a good thing? Who is she? She was the girl in Walkabout. Oh, right. Oh, okay. This was She's... part of her Hollywood career after after Walkabout. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. She, I just... Yeah, because I'm seeing her now, her profile page. She's also in American Werewolf in London. Mm-hmm, yep. And she gets the lads out in that too, fair play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she wasn't averse. I love referring to breasts as the lads. <laughs> the lads. Good God. Okay, so, yeah, Logan's run. Again, it's one of those things much in the same vein as, uh, like, uh, Kelly's Heroes or things like that. I probably have watched it on a Sunday afternoon. I feel like Logan's run had even taken on that level despite being about like some weird. Yeah. I feel like dystopian future for me, Logan's run is uh, on the list of, look, I should probably watch this at some point. So uh, here we go. Let's say get Logan's run done. And honestly, oh man, uh, I'm really looking forward to look at watching Snowpiercer again. So uh, hopefully it'll be a good week. If Logan's run does not let us down. All right, man. Chat you soonish. Okay. Goodbye. Bye everybody. La fin de journée, il se les roule. Il a beaucoup de philosophie, mais il aime trop la rififi. 